So I want to take you back to a uh, weird part of my life. Um, the fall of 2008, I had graduated from Wheaton College, which we um, unashamedly and unironically in those days referred to as the Harvard of evangelical schools. I wish that we were less pretentious than that, but that is actually what we said. And my life was great. And I had a vision for where my life was going. I knew for the first time in a long time exactly what was happening next and where my five-year plan and my 10-year plan, I had an idea. Um, you see, at the end of my senior year of college, um, my, I might call her one of my best friends, um, she and I became romantically entangled which was unexpected and at the time, wonderful. And she was going to law school in Champaign-Urbana, which is about two hours from where I was going to go to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, north of Chicago, which is one of the best seminaries, at least in terms of evangelical seminaries, that there is. So I was set to go to one of the best seminaries, be with this wonderful girl that I was head over heels for, who was only going to be two hours away. I was going to be back in what is my favorite city in the world at the time. And um, everything was going great. I was going to study, be there for the four years. I was going to get an internship with some fun church in Chicago. I was going to become a pastor in one of these emerging churches that were all kind of fluid and postmodern and fun and stuff. And I was ready to start my life. And so I packed up my car, my station wagon filled with everything that I owned in the world, and I drove 14 hours from New Jersey to Champaign-Urbana on my way up to my new home in Chicago. I just wanted to spend a day or two with this wonderful girl. But when I got there, she informed me that there had been a slight miscommunication. And it turns out that we were in a relationship that only one of us was in <laughs> because, quote, oh, I thought I told you I can't date anyone my first year of law school. It's just too much work. I just can't handle the emotional and, you know, having to talk all the time. And I, it's just, it's so much work. And everyone in the world and all the books I've read, they all say, don't date anyone your first year of law school because it'll all fall apart. I thought we talked about this. We did not talk about this. So dejected and alone, I took the two-hour drive up to my apartment and was lost. I was so lost. Um, I was alone and I had no community and I was heartbroken and I had no one to confide in. I had no friends. I had no family. I had nothing. But while I was there, my roommate connected with this small group attached to this weird church called Life on the Vine. And we, um, we went to one of these small group meetings. We didn't go to the services very much, just to these small groups. And one of the people there handed me a book, a book called The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. Has anybody here read this book? Some of you have. 
Um, Shane is a part of what is called the new monastic movement. People who um, have this belief that every 500 years or so, the church gets a little too cozy with power. And so the, the, what happens is people who get fed up with the, the kind of comfortable empire church, they go out into the fringes of the world and they create these monastic communities. We saw these with the desert fathers and mothers, with the, the monastics who would make these monasteries and everything. And um, now there is no fringes other than in our cities. And so they moved into the most forgotten parts of cities and created these communal communities where we they took vows of poverty and they they worked in the community and they helped to better the places where they were and lived lives of prayer and austerity so i'm reading this book the irresistible revolution and it's basically what if jesus was serious about the things he said what if jesus actually meant the words of the sermon on the mount and didn't actually just throw them out there as a fun suggestion of something we may or may not be able to do someday and he was doing it and there was something in that writing, something in the, the words that just, it spoke to me in this deep level and I couldn't put it down. And then one night I'm reading, I don't even remember what part of the book I'm in when the Holy Spirit descended in like a biblical sense. And it was unlike anything I've experienced before or since. And all I could do was stop. I couldn't read anymore. I tried to think my way through it because that's my go-to, but that didn't work. And so I had to just sit there in my sparsely uh, decorated apartment room, which didn't even have a, a bed. <laughs> it was just a mattress on the floor. And I just had to listen. And my brain was stuck. And I felt clear as day, this voice ringing inside of me that said, drop your books and follow me. Drop your books and follow me. Because this carefully constructed plan that I had put together for the next five, 10 years, it wasn't right. It wasn't good and it wasn't going to happen. And God was saying to me, let that die. Drop that plan and follow me into something new. So the next day I got up and I was so excited. I was so full of energy. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm dropping out of, of seminary. I'm moving into the city and I'm doing this thing. I'm going to find people who are doing this work and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it. So I applied to like 50 jobs in Chicago and in Philly because I'm from Jersey. And... Uh, Jobs that would like be helping people, you know, nonprofit jobs, things like that. I'm, I'm at this point, I have a bachelor's degree in ancient languages, so there's not a whole lot that I have practical in terms of skills. Um, but I applied to about 50 jobs, and then I didn't want to go and move in here alone. I needed some help. I needed some community. So I also emailed about 50 different churches that seemed like they were doing interesting things. I even emailed like Franciscans and was like, hey, I'm not Catholic, but I like what you're doing. Can we you have somewhere to live? Do you have a community? Do you have people? I emailed Shane Claiborne and said, hey, I want to come live with you. But Shane probably gets hundreds of those sorts of emails all the time. And they have like eight people in their house. So <laughs> they can't take everyone in. So weeks passed. I got nothing. No responses to anything. <sighs> Starting to get discouraged. Maybe I was wrong. 
Maybe I just had a seizure. Maybe it wasn't the Holy Spirit. And then I got an email back from a pastor from a church called Circle of Hope in Philadelphia. And he said, we actually have an intentional Christian community that is connected to our church that's forming that is looking for one more person. I'll get you connected with them. And then that same day, I got one email back from a job, an AmeriCorps job, which is technically a volunteer job with a living stipend that works out to be like $6 an hour in South Philly, teaching math at a disciplinary high school. So I got one job offer and one living situation and was like, okay, there's my path forward. I'm going to move into the city. I'm going to work in the school district. I'm going to live in this intentional community. I'm going to fix the world. It's going to be great. I started to put together my five-year plan based off of that, imagining where I'm going to be, what I'm going to do. I'm going to like grow dreadlocks and I'm going to live in the city and be this cool crust punk who's going to fix the world. And then that lasted for a couple of weeks, a month. Turns out the AmeriCorps job was awful. Couldn't support even myself living in intentional poverty. Still couldn't afford to live. So I left it and found a job at a thrift store. And then fall came around and I thought, I think now's the time to go back to seminary. Because now I feel like I'm connected to a community. I've got a cause. I'm not in this now for just the book learning and getting smarter. Now I'm in this for the right reasons. I want to learn to better my community, to better my area. I want to become uh, some kind of agent of change. That means I need to go back to seminary. But I'm super poor, and I don't have a car. And so if I'm going to go back to school, it has to be a place I can bike to. And living in West Philly, that meant one place, <laughs> Palmer Theological Seminary. So I applied at the very last minute, like two weeks before the applications, two weeks before like school started. And they let me in. And I met her on the first day. <laughs> uh, the woman who worked in admissions talked to me for a while, and she was like, oh, I got to go. But you were like the nicest person I've ever met. Can I introduce you to the other nicest person I've ever met? She's over here. Her name's Nicole. Here, talk. Have fun. Now, I was dating someone at the time, so we didn't connect. It would be another year and a half before we got married. But... <clears throat> But here I was then. I found myself in this amazing seminary with these professors, being a part of this church that was changing the world. And I started dating this incredible woman. We got married during seminary. Boom, got it figured out. Here's my plan. My life is finally coming together. But as my, my tenure was drawing to the end and I was about to graduate. I didn't know what I was going to do afterwards because I had felt this call to pastoral ministry since I was 15, but I've always hated it and fled from it. And I didn't want to do it because I never felt like I was a good enough Christian to be a Christian leader of people. Like it, I can't stay Christian enough for long enough for anyone to ever depend on me, spiritually speaking. So I thought academia was a good uh, a good compromise because nobody cares if your professor's having a crisis of faith, right? As long as they teach what they're supposed to teach. And so I had it in my head that what I really wanted to do was I wanted to get a PhD from Princeton Seminary in science and religion. 
It's one of the only places outside of California that offers a PhD in science and religion. At least they did now. They don't anymore. And that's my passion. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach science and religion. I wanted to write books. I wanted to give talks, be a speaker. This is my, my passion. This is what I wanted to do. But I always felt a little guilty about it because I think God is supposed to call you to things that you hate, right? Things that are hard and difficult. That's how what I was always taught anyway. I used to pray that God wouldn't make me a missionary because it sounds awful. So what I did was I enrolled in a class whose title is literally discerning God's specific call and vocation for your life with the Reverend Gary Arntasoni. So I said to God after I enrolled and we went through the first day, you've got one semester to tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. Because I've been left and right and up and down, and every six months my life takes a new direction, and I can't figure out my five-year plan anymore, God, so please, I'm about to graduate. I need a little help. So a week later, <laughs> a woman stopped me in the cafeteria, a woman that I have talked to maybe once in my entire life, and she said, it's Zach, right? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I don't even remember her name today. And she said, I have to tell you something. God woke me up at two o'clock in the morning when I was trying to sleep with a vision to give you, with a word to give to you. And I have no idea what it means, but it's going to eat me up until I tell you. I was like, oh, great. Lay it on me. She said, God, I, I got this vision and you were standing behind a podium in front of a group of people, and I couldn't tell if it was a church or like a, an auditorium, or I didn't know what it was, and you were up there. People were calling you doctor, and there was something kind of science-y about it, and I don't know if that's like a medical doctor, or that didn't make any sense to me, because you're in seminary and not in med school, but there was just something about it that was kind of science-y, but it was kind of like you were just speaking to a group of people, and I don't know if it was religious or not or whatever, but God specifically told me to tell you it doesn't matter what you pick. You cannot go somewhere that God cannot follow. Does that mean anything to you? I was like, oh my God, that means everything to me. That is literally the answer to my greatest prayer in life. You just gave me permission to do what I want, what my heart yearns to do and to not feel like I am running away from God like I'm Jonah running to Tarsus because I don't want to do the hard thing so I felt like this weight fell off of me and I could begin to dream again for the future and so I made the decision set in stone I'm going to Princeton I'm going to study science and religion I'm going to become a professor a writer a speaker I'm going to devote my life to this, and I don't feel an ounce of guilt. And Nicole at the time was planning on being a, a university chaplain. This has worked out perfectly. Our family was going to be great. I was going to teach. She was going to chaplain. We were going to be this dynamic duo on campus, wherever it was. It was going to be great. So after graduation, I decided to take a year off to get our finances in order because we were super poor, and also because 
this PhD program required a lot of languages I didn't know. So I was going to take the year to learn German and French. And then my favorite professor in the whole wide world uh, said to me, hey, Zach, I'm, I'm the interim pastor of this UCC church out in Reading, and I can't preach like these three Sundays. Do you think you could do it? And I thought to myself, and I was like, well, I don't know. I don't really have work on Sundays, and that's 200 bucks. Sure, I'll do it. I didn't know what the UCC was. I'm a Baptist. So I, 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 we drove up to Reading, and I walked in this building of this denomination I'd never heard of in a city I've never been to, and felt this overwhelming sense of rightness. Like, you know that feeling when you try on those pair of shoes? And you're like, oh, what have I been wearing my whole life? <laughs> but this isn't good. This would mean I'd have to be a pastor. And that's the thing I very specifically decided a year ago not to do. <sighs> but the search committee at that church felt the same exact rightness. And the head of the search committee called me that night to ask me to apply to a church in a denomination I'd never heard of before. So I was like, really? Really, God? We were just getting it figured out. Okay, I'll make you a deal. I will apply for this on one condition. On the condition that I will never be the pastor that I had. I will never be the pastor who has the faith that other people can build on who is so solid in their convictions that can make everyone else feel safe in their presence. That's not me, and it never will be me. I will be open and honest with this search committee and with this church, with this consistory, about my doubts, my fears, my issues, my problems with religion as a whole. And if this whole process still goes through, I will assume that's a divine miracle. And... This is where I'm supposed to be now. So I pastored that church for eight and a half years. <laughs> and so when I started to feel the winds of change blowing again during COVID, I knew that my expectations were about to shift in a brand new direction. <laughs> and I would do well to follow it here to where I am today. But can I tell you what I've learned through all of this? All the twists and turns and spiritual discernment, all the things that felt rock solid before they crumbled beneath my feet. Can I tell you what I've learned about all of these sharp turns in my life? I've learned that it can be a lot of fun. There is a lot of energy in newness, in new expressions and new explorations and new beginnings and new imaginings and new dreamings. It can be so much fun. But in the midst of these hard turns, you must take time to intentionally mourn the future that will never be. Because if you don't give that imagined future the space to breathe and then to die, it will impact the new future in really weird ways. Now, I don't know if this is true for artists, but it's true for songwriters that if I write a riff or a chord progression or a melody or something like that that I love, 
but I can't figure out how to make it into a whole song, and it'll just be a, like a song fragment. Every song I write after that, I will try to shoehorn that in, no matter what. We just watched this video of me playing a song I wrote in 10th grade at a talent show, and it's the verse and the chorus are in two different keys entirely. It sounds like two different songs, because it was really just me who loved this one little finger-picking uh, folk thing that I'd come up with, and then this big open emo chorus kind of thing and I shoved them together, and it's awful. It's terrible. It's not fair. To, it, it could have been two good songs. Instead, it was one bad one, because I couldn't let that riff die when I was starting a new one. <sighs> I had a songwriter friend tell me once that the only way to move on is to play that riff a few times and then give it the Marie Kondo treatment. You thank it for being an inspiration, and then you let it go. Trusting that there is no scarcity when it comes to creativity, that there is no scarcity of beauty in the world, that creativity is a renewable resource, and that there will be plenty left without that one beautiful guitar part. And so I think of Paul. I think of Paul who had this plan for his missionary activities. Paul had felt this clear call that he was supposed to be the preacher to the outsiders, that his place was not among the established church, which, I mean, to be fair, it had been established 13 years prior, but I imagine that they already had their traditions and were, this is the way we do it, because that's who we are as humans. But his call was to go outward to be different, to go out to the people who are not being reached. Now, Paul was from modern-day Turkey, and so he started there. And his first church planting tour, he uh, met a lot of resistance in that area, but he also made a lot of really great partners and started a couple of these really interesting uh, subversive communities in the cities of western Turkey, which, by the way, I'm going to keep using modern country names because as... I'm, I'm, as we heard earlier, we don't know where these places are, right? So if I say Bithynia and Pontus and all of that, I might as well be saying Middle Earth and Narnia and all of that, right? So anyway, after some retooling and strategic visioning, Paul prepared for his next tour, his next uh, mission. We're planting churches and meeting people and subverting the Roman systems as they did. And this time they were going to go the other way through Turkey, towards modern-day Iran and Armenia and Georgia. But for some reason, their plans kept falling apart. The text just says it, the Holy Spirit stopped them from going. We have no idea what that means. It could mean that they prayed about it and it just felt wrong. And we couldn't put our finger on why it felt wrong. Or maybe there was a natural disaster. Maybe there was an earthquake and it blocked their path and they couldn't go. Or there were fires or persecutions. I don't know what it was. Text doesn't say, doesn't matter. The point is, disappointment happened. Their plan did not work. Their five-year strategy fell apart. But he had a vision. He had a dream of a man in Macedonia saying, come to us Instead, come to Europe instead. 
And so they did. They changed their plans. They headed to Macedonia and to Greece. But even though they had not prepared for that detour, God did. Because it's not in our reading, but the two verses before this, we meet a young man named Timothy who had just joined Paul for this second trip. Now, Timothy was unique in that Timothy's dad was a Greek and his mom was a Jew. So now Paul and his merry band of evangelists are going out to Greece to preach about the Jewish Messiah, and it just so happens that they have a Greek Jew in their midst. God was working on this before they knew what was coming next. While they were still dreaming of a vision of a church that expanded through all of Turkey and Asia Minor, God was saying, I have other plans and I'm preparing you ahead of time for those plans before I let you in on the secret. And I love what happens after, after they finish this missionary journey. You know where they go? Home. They didn't like stop over in in Asia Minor, just on our way home. Let's hit up those cities we didn't get to before. They let that previous plan die. And they went home. You know, Paul never made it to the other half of Turkey. In their next and penultimate trip, um, they went back over all the places they had visited last time, recognizing that the old dream needed to die for the new dream to flourish. And I bring this up in this creative season of dreaming and reimagining. Every month, starting last month, we are gathering to dreamstorm our future as a church. And I want to caution us not to get too attached to the futures that we imagine. Let us hold them lightly, cherish them dearly, dearly, and then let them float away on the breeze when it becomes clear that their time is over. If those are truly good and right dreams, I'm sure their essence will return in another way. But we need to have faith that God has already prepared us for what's next. Just as that woman told me in seminary, there is no place that we can go where God will not follow us. So we are safe to dream and we are safe to let our dreams die because creativity, friends, is a renewable resource. And God the God of impossible things goes with us into these imagined futures.